is the TMI Project Podcast, Season 2, Black Stories Matter. I'm Micah, and today I'm going to introduce you to Daryl Lurie. We're going to start hearing from her regularly because she's joining the podcast as my guest co-host this season. Dara is my friend and co-conspirator in leading all the Black Stories Matter workshops. Hi, Micah. Hi, Dara. You might have caught her story in the Reclaiming Our Time episode we put out in August. If you haven't, allow me to recommend you give it a listen. Dara was born in the 1960s and grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Her mother was black, of Jamaican descent, and her father was Jewish, from Winnipeg, Canada. After attending fancy Vassar College, she migrated to Berlin, West Germany, in the mid-1980s, in the final years of the Cold War, which, if you're too young to remember, was a long period of geopolitical tension between the United States, the Soviet Union, and their respective allies. So, to put it in context, we're talking the Reagan-era 80s, me coming from the U.S. and uh, the culture of the 80s here was just about excess. It was really about uh, making money, about having extreme fun. I was a college student at that time, trying to figure out where I fit in, in in this whole racial spectrum that we have constructed in the U.S. And everywhere I looked, looked like a bad choice. At the time, East and West Berlin were philosophically and literally divided by a concrete and barbed wire wall. It was erected to keep Westerners out. But in practice, it kept people in East Berlin from defecting. That was the complicated setting of Dara's early 20s. Berlin in the mid-80s was like a, a lunar landscape. You could see the war damage from 40 years before. You felt like you were in the eye of a storm in a lot of ways. It was a wild time. She attended bar, wrote, and performed in theater while living in different communities of squatters, Green Party activists, journalists, teachers, and social workers. I got to sidestep my identity as an American, as a biracial American, and and that wasn't even really a thing. In, In the 70s and 80s, people weren't using the term biracial. It was like, are you black or are you white? They didn't offer you an expression for your full identity. The thing that really connected me to the Berlin timeline was that undercurrent of resistance against a status quo that was broken, that was diseased, that was dishonest. So the Germans I met in Berlin had made this very intentional choice to make a break with their history and saying, full stop here, this is messed up. They were really about you know, changing the politics, changing the culture, changing the conversation. So my biracial identity didn't really get addressed in that context, but it didn't feel like it mattered as much. Dara was there for the historic tearing down of the Berlin Wall on November 8th, 1989. She saw the city center filled with German people who had just passed through the checkpoint for the first time in 30 years. Families reunited, the streets jammed with traffic, and the air thick with exhaust from Russian trappy cars. I go into the supermarket um, right near my boyfriend's house, and it's a small place, and it's totally packed. You can hardly move. 
and I'm like inching through the aisles and people are standing in front of like displays of cereals and chocolates and all sorts of things. And they're having these discussions about the products like <laughs> they've never seen these things before. And there's an elderly gentleman, kind of looks like a professor, and he's holding an avocado, an avocado in his hand. He's talking to his wife. He says, Also, das Ilse ist eine Avocado. <laughs> and I'm like, my God. I wanted to hug them both and kiss them. But now on the second or third day, I was walking through town and some man takes his umbrella and points it at me. And he says, Auslander raus, foreigners out. And I was like, okay, that's the other shoe, just dropped. Berlin is where Dara happened to meet the late, great, black mother warrior poet, Audre Lorde, an icon of black feminism and activism. Bearing true drums on my head, I speak whatever language is needed to sharpen the knives of my tongue. The snake is aware, although sleeping, under my blood. Since I am a woman, whether or not you are against me, I will braid my hair, even in the seasons of rain. And after the event, I got introduced to her. And Audra put me on the spot and asked me what I was doing and who my support people were in this town. And I couldn't really answer her to her satisfaction. And she didn't let it go. She kept asking and asking and asking. I couldn't honestly answer her because I didn't know myself who my supports were. I didn't know where I fit in. For me, it had always been very implicit. I always knew that I am a black woman who is also Jewish. But explicitly in the world, I hadn't figured out where to stand. This was really on, in the aftermath of all the murders of Medgar Evers and Fred Hampton and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And the idea of stepping into any kind of really overt resistance in the U.S. was terrifying. I was and am still a racially ambiguous person. I walk into a room and people aren't quite sure what, you know, what my background is. So those, um, those facts actually gave me playroom or, you know, wiggle room to step aside, to, to, to not really fully engage, yet that didn't feel good to me either. When Audrey Lord asks you, what's your support? What did she mean and what did that question mean for you? She was speaking specifically to me as a biracial woman who had that wiggle room, who did have an option to, if not exactly pass. There was also a, a level of avoidance that I think she picked up. And she was kind of pinning me and saying, what are you doing? And um, what, what ground are you going to claim? And she really wanted me to understand that it was not possible for me to exist in the world without a strong community, without strong um, support. It took Dara some time to answer Roger's question. 
and for the next 30 years, Dara returned to the U.S. from Germany. Met and married her husband, Lee, who's old-school punk rocker on the outside and spun sugar inside. After a lifetime as city dwellers, they moved upstate and now live in a house surrounded by nature, where Dara writes and coaches other writers. Ultimately, she found the family she was looking for through her work at TMI Project, one based on telling stories with truth, courage, and compassion, her people. Dara and I are going to talk more about the discovery later in the podcast, but right now, we're going to hear her first monologue with TMI Project, when she drops us into an earlier phase of her life and an unexpected stay at the Greer School for, quote, disadvantaged children when she was nine years old. On my first morning at Greer, a state home for children, a girl named Trina smacks my face, knocking my glasses onto the grass. I'm following my new housemates along a path that leads to the schoolhouse when Trina turns to confront me. Why'd you take my book, she demands. It wasn't your book, I say. I'm determined not to show my fear. We've already had this exchange three or four times since my arrival yesterday. I told you it was my book, Trina insists. I found it under the couch, I say, refusing to turn and look at Trina, whose face is about six inches from mine. That's when she smacks me in the face with her open palm, and my glasses fly off my face and onto the grass alongside the path. I bend down to retrieve them, feeling my face get hot and my eyes start to water. But I clamp down on the tears because I am not going to show my feelings. See, that's what you get, Trina taunts. I stay silent and continue walking. Later, sitting on my bed, Shelley laughs her big-bodied laugh that helps warm my chilled insides. Shelley says, Trina thinks she bad. Her voice is dismissive, implying that Trina might not be a person to be feared after all. There's also Missy, the joker, who always makes me laugh with her sly disrespect of Trina's alpha attitudes. And Jackie, a large, silent girl who one day attacks me for no reason that I can understand at the time. None of us want to be at Greer. We're all washed up here by different family shipwrecks. But I know my situation is different. My situation is temporary. That's what Aunt Peggy said on the day that she brought me and my brother to this place. As soon as your mother is better, Peggy said. And I hold on to that promise as the rock-solid truth of my life. It's not that I've never seen black girls from poor families before. My neighborhood at the north end of Central Park is very mixed, racially and economically. One block over from our pre-war doorman building on Central Park West, the Frederick Douglass Housing Project stretches across an entire avenue and four blocks from 100th to 104th Street. Those projects are occupied by low-income black and Puerto Rican families. I learned very early on 
that those blocks and those people are to be avoided. Those people. Everything about my upbringing teaches me that I am a kind person who lives in a culturally inclusive world. Yet, I'd see these loud, gum-snapping girls, wiry or overweight and poorly dressed on the streets and the supermarkets that we share, and I'd feel this immediate judgment of their English filled with dats and does in place of crisp T and TH sounds, or the grinding down of the two-syllabic asked to a monosyllabic axed. I feel an immediate judgment of their speech, their bargain basement clothing, and their behavior. And I know for sure that we have nothing in common. But now I'm living with those girls, those people, sporting my own bundle of bargain basement clothes, drab clothes made from poor material, all recognizable markers of my former identity are gone. The places, the people, and the food, all gone. On my first night at Greer, they served pickled pig's feet in the dining hall where the whole school gathers for dinner. I'm thoroughly disgusted. A couple months earlier, I was ordering my dinner from the menu at my family's restaurant in the Poconos. Pork chops and mashed potatoes with gravy and South African lobster tails broiled in butter were my favorites. One week, I ate lobster tails for five days straight until the cook told on me and I was banned from eating that dish again. I'd heard about pig's feet, but never expected to confront one on my plate. <laughs> it's good, Shelley insists. So I try it, and I'm disgusted all over again. <laughs> the slick, greasy meat only compounds my feeling that we are all throwaway children eating throwaway food. I spend 10 months swimming in this sea of not belonging, claimed only by the state and its employees. 10 months is a long time when you're nine years old. It's more than one-tenth of your whole life. Gradually, my ideas about the differences separating me from the girls in my house dissolve into an awareness of the sameness of our daily routines. Breakfast at the round white table in our kitchen, getting dressed for school, walking the path to school each morning, returning home in the afternoon to homework, dinner, and at the end of the evening, everyone gathered around the TV. Everyone except for me. I'm alone in the single room that the house mother has assigned me hidden inside my books. Until one night, one of the girls sticks her head in my room and asks if she can do my hair. At the start of fourth grade, I convinced my mother to let my hair grow long. 
and she began a daily regimen of hard brush strokes back from the hairline, training my curls to lie down. The daily brushing, combined with generous amounts of a white cream called VitaPoint, worked, and my curls grew into long, flyaway strands of hair that were provisionally well-behaved. By now, it's been a couple months since my hair has been properly brushed or combed. I have a bad habit of only brushing the topmost layer, ignoring the thick mass of hair beneath. One morning, I'm trying to comb my hair out, and the comb gets completely stuck. I try yanking it, but it won't budge. It's trapped inside the bird's nest that is my hair. I fly into a rage, ripping at the comb, ripping at my hair to get the comb out. The girl standing next to me at the bathroom mirror tells me to calm down, that she will help me get the comb out. And she does, easing it through the tangled plates of my hair with a patience that I don't possess. That night, when Phyllis sticks her head in my doorway and asks if she can do my hair, I am beyond grateful. I join the other girls in my house in front of the TV, and for the first time, sitting at Phyllis's feet as she untangles the knots and clumps of matted hair, working in grease, smoothing my hair into the soft strands that she weaves into a neat latticework of cornrow braids. It's a masterwork that everyone crowds around to admire. The next morning, I ask Phyllis to take the braids out because they're giving me a headache. <laughs> she looks at me for a moment, saying nothing. I can see that she isn't happy. But she agrees. That night, I'm back at Phyllis's feet as she carefully unweaves the cornrow and combs out my hair, which now lies in soft, obedient strands that she wraps around several large curlers that I have to sleep on overnight. <laughs> the next morning, Phyllis arranges my hair in Shirley Temple ringlets that I now have to wear to school. I know better than to complain a second time. <laughs> but I feel pretty stupid. Still, it's nice to feel my hair all bouncy and soft. I never have to do my hair again after that first night of the braids. Everyone wants to try out different hairstyles on my malleable hair. I'm grateful for all this expert attention to my hair, and also, although I don't admit it to myself at the time, I'm grateful for having a simple way of being connected to the girls in my house. When I tell people about my experience at Greer, they usually say, I'm sorry you had to go through that. But I'm not. I'm profoundly grateful. I spent a year as an orphan living in a state-run home with black girls I never would have known or been able to imagine in my previous life as a well-loved, well-fed, well-dressed child riding in a private school bus 
to a private school with other kids like me. Before this, my own racism had been invisible to me. This was the first time I really saw my othering of people. I will always feel profoundly grateful for Trina, Missy, Phyllis, and especially Shelley. They showed me something important about the world and something important about myself that I needed to know. Dara, I can remember um, really it was the first time we met, right? It's in, in that workshop space in 2017 where we gathered with a number of other black writers. And I can remember there was a sense, in fact, one of the writers even touched on it. If this is the one chance I get to tell my story, what story do I tell? Like we were all in this special place of like, wait, someone wants to hear my story? I get to share that? Let alone I'm going to stand on stage <laughs> and and share it with an audience, you know? But like, I felt like we all were like finding ourselves as we were finding our stories in a way, right? I had always been invited to tell my story in a kind of informal way, but always as this kind of like special thing, like this odd thing, like, oh, isn't this interesting, this half black, half Jewish woman who, does, you know, went to Vassar, lived in Berlin, whatever, you know, and wanting to not feel like, um, <laughs> like an oddball freak, um, just one off. And so when I got this invitation to join a cohort of black writers, I was so excited. A door was being opened for me where I could be in a room with other black Americans in a way that would feel safe and open-hearted and, and take away some of my fears about being rejected and not being black enough, not being the right kind of black person. Yeah, I'd never been in that, you know, in a space that was just um, open to my vulnerability as a black person. As black people in America, we mostly, I feel safe saying this as a we, we are taught that you, to keep our vulnerability small, to keep it tucked in a pocket, and to move through the world pretty armored, to find ourselves in this group where vulnerability can be unpacked. And nobody's listening to it like, oh, isn't this interesting? You know, you're not like on display for the white gaze in these conversations. It felt evolutionary because it was my first experience among black folks where I was able to let down my guard completely. Months after our performance, Dara and I both came back to do the TMI facilitator training and have since co-directed and led numerous Black Stories Matter workshops. And that space that we found, that sacredness, that vulnerability that you talk of, and the, the holding is, I think it's been the desire to not only share stories, but the desire to create that space for others that, that I would say drives 
uh, the work that you and I get to do together. And so this season, you'll get to listen to other stories created in, in that space, in that space that is Black Stories Matter. This episode is a collaborative creation, developed and written by myself, Haley Downs, and Dara Lurie. Haley also edited and produced, mixed by Marlon Barry. The theme song is Secrets by Edison Woods. Thank you to Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. And danke to Oliver Interborn for his German line readings. The Audre Lorde excerpt you heard was from Dahomey. This episode is dedicated to Audre Lorde, who invoked the power of language in her writing, and who said that with every real word spoken, we discover new ways of connecting with each other. Our executive director is Eva Tenuto. Our director of external affairs is Sarah DeRose. The operations manager is Blake File. Shante Howe is the publicist for this season of the podcast. And Clarissa Marie Ligon is our Black Stories Matter virtual workshop manager. Lauren Gill is our graphic designer and webmaster. This podcast is co-produced by Radio Kingston. Special thanks to Ida Hakala, Nate Brogan, Kel Capashillin, Jimmy Buff, and North Guild Productions. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It really helps. tmiproject.org backslash Black Stories Matter. That's where you find more information about participating in online true storytelling workshops just for black folks or attending a virtual live performance for an inclusive audience. Help us continue to create radically true stories that have the power to change the world. Make a donation today. tmiproject.org.